find a seat. We have uh, Brian Hayes. He's one of the uh, uh, young life leaders in this area, uh, working primarily with Glen Oak, but all around. And um, his uh, friend Bree, and they uh, do a great work for our area with young people. And here's one of their scholars. Okay, say a prayer for us. Father, thank you so much for this beautiful morning. Uh, thank you for safe travels here. Um, I just, I just pray that we can just envelop our minds in, in your glory and your love for us, just in a better understanding of, of how your will is willing to work into us. Jesus, I just pray that uh, we open our hearts to what John is going to teach us today and that we just uh, continually remind ourselves of your great love and your teachings and how um, they just spread not only to the time right here, but to the times when we leave this building. Jesus, thank you for this morning, and in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Okay, my friends, uh, up on the board here, you can see the topic for this morning. Uh, it, the chapter in my book, it's chapter 8, if you want to turn there, uh, is called Communication with God Beyond Words. But once you look at the word up on the board, and you can see something interesting, uh, communion, uh, we say these words, but when you break down the word, what does communion actually mean? Communion with? Union with, right. And uh, so uh, when you say prayer, that often makes a different connotation in our minds, something that we do to God. But actually today we're going to learn uh, from the central passage in the New Testament on communication with God that it is more of a communion rather than us just saying a lot of words to God. We're also going to see today that this passage, which I think in the, all of the Bible is the es essence of what the scriptures teach about communication with God, uh, it involves a mystical dimension to it that Paul actually says is beyond words. So you'll have to carefully watch for this and... Uh, uh, pay attention as we read this magnificent passage. Now, I'm going to put that there, as always. Um, do you want to run today? Are you awake? Okay, here. <clears throat> so you watch out for uh, people when they talk. And uh, we're going to start at Romans 8, 18 through 39. Now, lots of times when you read longer passages in the Bible, uh, it, it sometimes doesn't work. Um, in our modern era, and that's because we're used to uh, soundbite uh, communication. But you know, through the history of the church, reading of the scripture out loud has been uh, a hallmark. And I think it's this passage deserves to be read all the way through, and then we're going to tear it apart. So I'll do the reading this morning, uh, and I'm going to start at verse 18. I'm reading out of a more traditional version. So if you're using a modern version, uh, just hang in there. Uh, and try to follow along. Romans 8, 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay 
and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as children, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And the one who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love God, who have been called according to God's purpose. For those God foreknew, God also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of God's Son, that Jesus may be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those God predestined, God also called, and those God called, God also justified, and those God justified, God also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? God, who did not spare God's own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will God not also, along with Jesus, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. One of the most beautiful passages in the New Testament. Uh, we could have a whole course on just this section. So today, what I want you to do when we start unpacking it is to think about what this passage teaches us about communication with God, or as we conventionally say many times, prayer. Okay, but I'm going to use consistently, hopefully, the term communication uh, instead of prayer as we go through this. Now, let's go through the passage. And... I want you to help me. I'm, we've read it, and I'm going to start at verse 18 again. And uh, let's try to, uh, as we work through it, let's keep our eyes on prayer. And also, the thesis of my chapter is on page 85. 
that communication with God is supposed to be an experience with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So it's supposed to bring us up into the triune God. It's supposed to be a living experience with all three members of the Trinity. And also, at its highest level, it doesn't involve words. And that's kind of a weird idea, but we're going to see what Paul really is getting at when he tells us this. So let's start at the beginning now, verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. And he goes on and starts talking about creation. So what do you think about that opening thesis? I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. What is the glory that he is indicating that is going to be revealed to us? What does this text tell us? And it's free to, if you're free to talk, I want you to talk back to me, not just listen this morning. What is this? When he makes that assertion, what we're going through right now can't even be compared. It's not worth being compared. What is the glory that he says will be revealed to us? Our existence with God in eternity. Yeah. Okay, our existence, the future existence that we're going to have with God in eternity. Um, and specifically, what does he say about that? Now, he's talking about creation itself. Um, and he says creation at, at its current time has been subjected to what? Decay and futility. But God's plan, God's cosmic plan, is to do what? Can anybody see from this passage? What is God going to do? God has reached into a creation that is uh, groaning he says. And how is it groaning? Does he make a metaphor here that you can see? What's, what's the, pangs the pangs of childbirth? So actually, now I'm going to do it on this side of the board. So he actually, what he is making an analogy is, is that creation itself is sort of like what? Like a pregnant woman. Creation itself is like a pregnant woman. And what is creation doing? It's groaning, as if it's going to be giving birth to something. And what is it going to give birth to, does he say? What's going to be brought forth out of creation that is actually the child? Creation is in agony right now. So what is it bringing forth? Uh, yes, there's some, uh, it has something to do with God's glory, but something a little bit more specific. The glorious liberty. Of what? The children of God. The glorious liberty of the children of God. In other words, out of this groaning, subjected to futile, subject to decay creation, which is groaning right now, God is going to bring forth children who are going to share in God's glory. And who are those children? We are. All right, so the first groan, and he uses this three times in this passage, the first groan that he talks about here is creation itself. It's like a pregnant mother. Do you ever th th can you relate to this? Can you? Yeah. I know, Judge Haas, it's hard for you as a male, but... I was there. <laughs> okay, women... You're groaning in the pangs of childbirth, those of you who have had children. 
And now he makes this analogy that this is creation itself and it's trying to bring forth something. God's trying to bring forth something out of this creation that's been subjected to decay and he's going to bring forth glorious children and creation is groaning. Who else is groaning? There's three groans in this passage that I want you to find. So creation is groaning. We ourselves, verse what, 23. We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we also, so who are those who have the first fruits of the Spirit? Who is he describing? Uh, Not just the apostles. Early Christians, actually all Christians, because the definition of a Christian, according to Paul, back earlier in the chapter, here I'll show you, Uh, go back to verse um, 9, you, however, are not controlled by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, and if, if the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, that person doesn't belong to Christ. So what's the definition of a Christian? Somebody who has the Spirit of Christ and by implication by the, the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of the Father, all three members of the Trinity come to live inside of a person when they become a Christian. So Paul says even those people who have God living inside of them, verse 23, we ourselves who have this amazing experience of God living in us, what else are we doing? We're also groaning. What are we groaning for? Specifically, what does he say we're groaning for? What is redemption, but haven't we already been redeemed? We want a new body. A new body! That's... I do. You do. I do too. A new body is the the completion of God's plan. So out of this uh, carbon-based life form that is bound up with a decaying and corrupted creation, God is going to bring forth creatures who, yes, now have the Spirit living inside of them, uh, and that's a wonderful gift, but that's not the end of it. God is going to bring forth out of this creation, out of these bodies, people that have bodies just like who? just like Christ. That is, in God's mind, the full plan of redemption. You're going to get a new body and a new spirit, immortal, forever you will live in union with Christ. So, the second groan is the Christians themselves. So, does this make you feel better? Do you ever groan inside of yourself? And some well-meaning Christian comes along and says, well, you shouldn't be groaning. You should be happy all the time because um, you have Christ in your life. You shouldn't... uh, Has anybody ever said that to you? So the Bible itself says that, yes, we've been redeemed, but not fully. Yes, we have the first fruits of the Spirit, but we don't have the fullness of what God's going to do. And so we are groaning in consort with creation. We're all waiting, longing, expectantly for this great delivery that's going to come forth when we get new bodies and are perfectly redeemed. Ah, now we get to the core of the whole thing. Verse 26, the third groan. And there he says, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness. What is our weakness? What does this passage tell us? Well, uh, we have the weakness of the flesh. 
And, and what his point is, Brian, that it's something that's related to our flesh that has to do with communication with God. We don't know how to do what? We don't know what we ought, Paul says, to pray for. Why not? Because we're too busy praying for the things that our body wants. We're too busy praying for things that are based on this earth alone and the way that we would like to see things go on this earth. And we don't even understand God's cosmic plan well enough to fully grasp the fact that God's doing something that is far beyond our comprehension. So he says, in effect, we don't even know how to pray. That's a shocking... So how does the Spirit help us, does he say here in this passage? The Spirit groans. The Spirit, now this is the third groan. The Spirit is groaning within us. The Holy Spirit is groaning within us. How does he describe it? With sighs too deep for words or with groans that are not part of our vocabulary. So these groans, they're not actually words. Now keep reading. What is the Holy Spirit doing? He's groaning and he's, keep reading. He's, the Spirit himself is interceding. If you want to look at it, and it sounds weird, to, to say prayer here, but the Holy Spirit is praying or communicating within you with groanings that are not subjected to human words. And what is he praying for? Does he say? For God's ultimate will to be achieved in each of our lives. Now, I think this is an amazing insight. We now know that, uh, and I'm going to just take two minutes to, to uh, deal with this because it's kind of a controversial thing in our culture. This verse right here that has uh, reference to the Holy Spirit is often snatched out of its context by well-meaning uh, brothers and sisters in Christ and made to uh, stand for or mean what? Does anyone know? Have, has anyone heard this? Yes, tongues, glossolalia. So this passage then becomes a proof text that the Holy Spirit imparts this uh, glossolalia or speaking in another language or whatever uh, inside of the Christian. And therefore, the next inference, next move of the argument is that if you don't speak in tongues, that means what? Then you must not have the Holy Spirit. And so then... The next step after that is, well, if you don't speak in tongues and you don't have the Holy Spirit, then the next step would be what? You, well, you're not really a Christian. And then the next step would be what? You need to speak in tongues. Because if you do, then that'll be the sign that what? That you're a Christian. Okay, now the question is, is this passage really talking about <laughs> tongues or glossolalia at this point? Uh, why don't you think so? Okay, tongues is a gift of the Spirit, totally separate. That's one point. Get ready to run, because they're starting to think. <laughs> they're right over there. I, I think this is really more of a proof text that the Holy Spirit cannot be separate. 
says that in so many words as those as that verse 27 ends because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God they're they're un, they're inseparable yes so it's God making the groan for us yes God is groaning inside of us right so what what does that have to do with speaking in tongues I I don't connect that at all okay well that's a good point it uh, and uh, thanks for that observation because we can't ever lose this the the groans of the Holy Spirit are for I'm going to use the shorthand God's will but somebody might say uh, yeah that's right the Holy Spirit's speaking in tongues inside of us uh, for God's will to be achieved can anybody see, look at this text and see why that's probably not a good way of looking at the passage. And I'm not here to beat that viewpoint. I want it. I want us to clar. I want it to be clarified so that we really understand. Yes. Um, well, speaking in tongues is still using um, sounds coming out of your mouth. No, no. Speaking in tongues no, is still words. using what? Well, they're words. But they're, they're words. Not, they're not understandable. But. It's saying he doesn't use words. I mean, it's yes. just such a brilliant. Thank you. What happens on the day of Pentecost when they first speak in glossolalia, tongues? They were speaking in tongues that other people they, Tongues is actually just a, a symbolic, metaphorical way of saying what? Languages. Because when they spoke in tongues, did other people hear them? Understand them? Yes, they, they spoke in the languages of the dialects of all the people that were there. But this passage says that those groans are not words. Tongues is, is actually language. It's actually words. These are not words. Brilliant insight. Now the, now the next one. There's one more way you can clarify what this passage really means. Yes? Well, for me, he feels good because for a lot of days I forget to pray. And he's praying, the Holy Spirit's praying for me anyway. What a brilliant insight. Thank you. Now, I mean, this is one of the big things I communicated with God about this morning for all of you and you just achieved it prayer now we discover what is ultimately rooted initiated by by God and even if you were a really faithful Christian and got up every morning and said your prayers this passage actually told you what God, the prayers came from God first and it also tells you what even if you do get up every morning and say your little prayers as a good, good Christian most of the time, Paul says what? You don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> you don't even know what you should properly ask for. So you felt good about yourself because you said your prayers. But the real prayer is going on where? Inside you, initiated by God the Holy Spirit. Now that's such a staggering insight, Dr. Smith, that we have to hold on to it. wonderful opportunity and uh, that he sent that he sent that buck by in the last minute before the hunt ended okay god is great (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and i'm sure uh you know like that's very much akin to you know you've gone out to the uh, uh, north native american mission many times and maybe you've kind of picked up some of their spirit but when they would kill a buffalo or uh, kill an animal, what would they always do? They would thank the animal and thank the great spirit for providing, they, they treated that animal like uh, uh, 
it had sacrificed its life, almost like it was like a Christ figure. Thank you, for, because of your sacrifice, we're not going to be able to live. So it wasn't just, you know, shooting them. So, I mean, that's fine. I mean, I'm sure God appreciated it, that you <laughs> thanked him. Yes? Um, okay, well, uh, I actually, can we reserve that for the end? I mean, I kind of deal with the Lord's Prayer at the end of the chapter. Uh, and, uh, but I want, in my, what I'm trying to teach you today, I want you to eventually kind of see that the Lord's Prayer is not above what he's teaching here, but the Lord's Prayer is actually a corollary of or even underneath this profound understanding that he's trying to give it to us about prayer. So hold that thought for a second and bring it up in maybe like 10 minutes. All right, so yes. One of which I've heard, which doesn't sound like any language for anybody. Yeah, they do. And thanks for the specificity. Um, they make a distinction between the gift of glossolalia and B, what they call a prayer language. And this text they use as a proof text for the prayer language notion. Now, the only difficulty with that is... Uh, Every place that glossolalia is spoken of in the New Testament, the same Greek word is always used. There's never a different word. It doesn't make a split and say, okay, this is glossolalia, and this is a prayer language. So when Paul does talk about praying in tongues, he uses the same Greek word, praying with glossolalia. So I would, I would try to say to somebody that hold, held this view, you can pray with the gift of glossolalia, but it isn't a separate thing. It isn't a separate prayer language. If you have that gift, you can pray with it. You can also sing, Paul says, in tongues. You can sing with that language. You can also give messages from it. But it isn't a separate thing just because you're doing different functions with it. Does that make sense? Now, there's one other thing. Just look at the board again. There's one other way that you can understand that this is probably not glossolalia. What does he say the Holy Spirit's doing? Groaning, 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 not with words. So if this groaning is glossolalia, then what's this? And moreover, what's this? Are we to believe that the creation itself is speaking in glossolalia? Do all Christians speak in glossolalia? But he says all Christians do what? They're all groaning. All of creation is groaning. So if you follow the sequence of words here, the language here, it doesn't make sense to make this one all of a sudden be glossolalia and this one not and this one not, or does it make sense to make us believe that creation itself is speaking in tongues? And we know that all Christians don't, okay? So for all of those reasons, and by the way, I think glossolalia really is a spiritual gift. I think it still exists, so I'm not arguing against it. But we, what we know from the New Testament is, number one, not all Christians have this gift. And also, I think it ruins the meaning of this passage when you turn this one into a proof text for glossolalia, because that's not his point. Yes? So 
what, what is the Greek origin for the word? Of? Grown. Stenegmois. Stenegmois. Do you get any other derivation from uh, I don't. This is one of those that we don't in English. But it just literally, yes, uh, Dr. Barrett. Well, uh, how would I account for that? Uh, I would follow the standard interpretation that all, all of the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to us, like teaching, evangelism, healing, all of those kinds of things, they all have their counterparts. I mean, uh, other people in other religious traditions are all over the world. They do teaching as well. And so... Uh, and those aren't authentic spiritual gifts. I mean, there are functions that humans do, but if they're not leading us to Christ, then they're not really a gift from the Holy Spirit. So I think there's a lot of what some people would say false tongues. In other words, it's basically psychobabble. It's not really a language. It's a mystical thing that people undergo, but it doesn't lead anywhere because it doesn't have any content to it. Whereas the authentic glossolalia that's mentioned in the New Testament always has what? If it's an authentic glossolalia, what happens? Yeah, either there's somebody there that can interpret it spiritually or that it's actually a language spoken to somebody uh, that they actually understand it. Much of the glossolalia that occurs all over the world that... Um, uh, seems to resemble the gift of tongues in the New Testament, there's never any interpretation for it. There's not any language that it corresponds to. Uh, personally, John, I wouldn't want to have glossolalia because everybody, the three times that I've been around it, they, everybody looks at them as if they're nuts. Well, and, and, and I would say probably they looked at it that, at those people like they were, as you put it, nuts. Um, <laughs> Probably because it wasn't practiced correctly. In other words, there wasn't an interpretation that was congruent with the entire message that was being promulgated that day among the assembly. Because Paul says when it's in operation, two or at the most three are supposed to speak in tongues. And then there's supposed to be an interpretation that is congruent with everything else that's going on that day. Is it making sense? Did that happen? No, no, no. no. That's what I mean. So, so if, if somebody's just over in the corner riffing off on glossolalia and there's no interpretation, well, of course somebody, that's what Paul himself says that in 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, somebody's going to come in and, and watch that happening and they're going to say, you people are uh, crazy. So that's why Paul said it should always be done a certain way. Two or the most three should do it. It has to be interpreted. If it isn't possible to interpret it. If there's no interpreter there, then Paul says what? Sit down and speak silently to God. Sit in your little pew and riff off, but do it under your breath so that no one can hear you. I mean, it's all very clear how he lays it out. Dan, and then we'll come back. So if we go back then, if groaning isn't just words, and we go back to the birth analogy, or the labor analogy, then yeah. Groaning is an activity of pain and suffering in anticipation of something you haven't seen but want to see, the birth of the child. Yes. So this is more of a heart event 
rather than a physical pronunciation event. Yes, that's and, it, and it has an expectation and hope in it for something unseen but desired, the child, the, the love, uh, the expectation. I'm sure the mothers in this room are going to help me here pretty soon of what, it, what all the emotions are of labor because this groaning is an a emotional response of the heart. It's not words. It's, it's a desire. It's an expectation. It's a, um, longing. a longing. Thank you. Longing. No, no, no. You're not supposed to be. But Judge Haas, now tell me, haven't you walked out of court some days and just said, "Oh"? <laughs> I pass on that one. You pass on that one. <laughs> yeah. Okay. 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 Well, we don't want to get hung up on the uh, the strictness of the metaphor. Dan just did a nice job of of uh, relating it to birth pangs. But this kind of a groan that the Christians are groaning for, it's like, uh, come on, don't you, don't you guys ever say it when you're going through stuff in life, when you're watching things that people go through? Don't you just have this, we'll use Judge Hodge's words, a longing, please, God, take us out of this. Please get us through this. Please make this go away. <laughs> I'm going to watch you when you leave court someday. <laughs> Good. You can almost, almost use a sports net. You know, there's sometimes when you're cheering your team, you don't use it's like. Ah, I, 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 oh. <laughs> Do you have an interpretation for that? <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's that's what he's getting at. A longing. Yes, Susan. Okay. Uh, and the groaning, the last, the third one. It's anticipation, but you don't know necessarily. It's so easy to try to interpret it before you've heard anything because it's an anxiety or a, a sense of unease or I'm not gonna, I could use the word dis-ease. Okay. That, that sense of what's going on, I feel strange but I haven't got words for it. It's hard to wait rather than interpret it and judge it. Mm -hmm. To wait to see what's coming. Good. It's practice. Okay. It's hard to practice. It's hard to practice the waiting because yes. we want to jump to what does this we mean? Want results. Now, what we now know though is the main point of this is this is in tongues, this is in tongues. I don't think this is tongues. I think this is the Holy Spirit inside of each one of us who's, as Dr. Smith said, praying, interceding to God according to God's will for each one of us, even when we don't pray, the Holy Spirit's also praying. Now look at the next verse for the, for the, the key to the whole thing. Um, um, verse 27. And the one who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit. Well, who's the one that searches our hearts that knows the mind of the Spirit? Can't be the Spirit. The Spirit is the one that's interceding inside of us and longing according to God, who's the one that searches our hearts and knows what the Holy Spirit is interceding for? Who is that? God? I know why you would say that. But now I want you to look at verse 34. What does th verse 34 tell you that the Lord Jesus is also doing? He's at the right hand of God and what is Jesus doing for us? 
He's interceding. So now, here's communion with God. What's the Holy Spirit doing inside of you? Okay. Yes, he's, uh, he's longing. He's communicating. He knows everything about each one of us. He knows every one of your fears, every one of your worries, every one of your problems. He knows exactly what God's will is for you. How many times do we all stumble around and say, I don't know what God's will is. Who knows God's will? The Holy Spirit, because he's longing, he's communicating according to God's will. Because the Holy Spirit knows God's will. Now, what is Jesus doing? Also interceding for you. Now, Jesus knows what? He knows the same thing that the Holy Spirit does. Jesus knows your heart. The Holy Spirit knows your heart. They both understand what's going on inside of you perfectly, and they also, because they're omniscient and know God's will for you, they know God's will for you. So the Holy Spirit's interceding for you, and Jesus is also doing what? They're interceding together. All the time. Is this amazing or what? And we just, we just found out about what about prayer? It, it really comes from God. It really starts with God. So when Paul says we don't know what to pray for, who can see the connection between the two now? We and our flesh and ourselves do not know what to pray for. But the Holy Spirit knows what to pray for, and Jesus knows what to pray for. So who can connect the dots here? So authentic, apostolic, New Testament, true Christian prayer would be what? <laughs> yes, but who can connect the dots here? That's, that's getting close. The, the Jesus and the Holy Spirit are praying for us. Thank you. In other words, prayer would not be us sitting over here telling them what we ought, think ought to happen. It would rather be what? I will. Why don't you tell me what you're interceding inside of me or for this person or for that event? Why don't you communicate to me what you are already praying for? Now, you're, you're looking at me like I'm a cult leader, and I understand. So, what, what's going on now when, once you just heard this? C.S. Lewis said it best. I don't pray to change God. I pray to change myself. Uh, yes. Rough paraphrase, but you got the point. Yes. Prayer doesn't change God. Prayer changes me. So what Lewis is trying to get at is, is instead of us coming with our bucket list that we drop on to God, authentic prayer would be what? What would be the first step? What are you, what are you praying for, God? Holy Spirit, what are you interceding for? Jesus, what are you interceding for, Brian? 
And I feel like in America, and this might be relative, but uh, from what I've experienced from many Christians, especially like trying to teach new Christians, is they want to talk to God and talk to God and say all these things. And then in reality, it's not our words that are going to affect, like what he just said with C.S. Lewis. It's, it's not our words that affect Christ. It's not our words that affect Christ's will. Um, it's, his, it's his spirit inside of us that, like you were saying, it's groaning. And it's, it's our job to be able to sit in reverence of him. And try and figure out, kind of like, when I think of prayer, I think of Revelation and how John is just dumbfounded when mm-hmm. he sees this beautiful image of uh, just the church coming to be the bride of Christ. Mm-hmm. And it's it's such a, a moment of just an awe of God. And, and I feel like your book goes so well with this because we're not supposed to, words don't really accredit God's spirit inside of us as, as what we want them to. And I just feel like so many times as Christians, we just need to sit and and not so much speak, but just let God speak to us. Yes. That's where... Pr- now, what happens, assuming that you're listening correctly, you're waiting on God and they're interceding inside of you, is it going to turn out that you're going to be able to actually understand some of the things that they might be interceding? Is that going to happen? Well, why wouldn't it happen? Now, what I've experienced lots of times is um, I'll be sitting there blathering and telling God how I think things should be. And in the midst of doing that, God will suddenly, not with words, but give me an understanding. Give me not a vision, but an insight, or it's beyond words. But suddenly it'll be like God will show up, hold a mirror up to me and show me what I'm praying for and then show me in light of that what I should be praying for. I will actually see my own spiritual poverty by the stuff I'm blathering on to God and then all of a sudden, boom. It's not like God condemns me. It's all of a sudden God illuminates me so that I understand what God wants me to pray about. He said, shut up, John. <laughs> yeah, that's about right. <clears throat> Now, does this passage, as it goes on in its context, tell us some things that we can always count on that the Holy Spirit and Jesus would be interceding for? I mean, is there a vision here, like as the passage goes on, of the, when he says uh, that they intercede according to God? Well, what is according to God? What is it that they would be praying about in the context of this passage? What is it now? What does it tell you about God over here? What does what, the Father, starting at verse 28, what does it say that the Father does? He is always at work for the good of those who love him. He's working the totality of all things together for the good. Does he define what the good is in this passage? Yes. What does God do? He gives us a number of things that God does. For those whom God foreknew. Okay, foreknew. This is the God we're communicating with. God also did what? 
Now that's just the fancy words for God has a plan for you. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, justified. What's that mean? Made right with God through the gracious work of Jesus Christ on the cross. His death on the cross and our faith in that death justifies us, wipes the slate clean. Those whom he justifies, why does he put it in the past tense? You're not yet glorified. The work of glorification from God's point of view has been done. Glorification is the definition of what? What's God's ultimate plan? To be conformed versus that. Verse 29. For those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus. So God is working all of these things together to do what? Pull carbon-based creatures out of this earth existence take us out of there and take us where? Into the exact conformity of Jesus Christ. So now you just found out, and if they're interceding according to God's will, and if God's will ultimately is to do all these things so that God can bring us to a state of conformity with Christ, we now just found out pretty much what we're supposed to be praying for. Which would be what? For, for us and for everyone else. May they be conformed to the image of Christ. Now, this is where it gets really sticky. Now, what does Paul say uh, that he is convinced of in verse 37? Or well, actually, let's back up a little bit. <coughs> verse 35. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he names a lot of things that none of us want to go through. And when we do go through them, what is our prayer almost always? Get me out of here here and take this away. Now, if we're supposed to be conformed to the image of Christ, and if Christ himself went through these things, then what does that tell you about why God would let us go through these things to make us like Jesus. So the earthly way that we usually pray is please take away this trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, or danger. Please take all that away from me. And this text is telling you what? It's in that process of going through these labor pains of suffering in this world that God's going to do what? bring us into the exact conformity of Jesus. In other words, Jesus himself did what? He entered this fallen world and experienced all these things and now is pulling us out and while we're still going through all of these things, God's praying what? Not that they'll all go away. What's God praying? That that God who works all things together for good will use these things to bring us into conformity with Christ. 
Now that really turns everything on its head, doesn't it? And I can tell you don't like it. And I don't like it either, because why? What I would like to do is believe in some of the books that I've seen in the bookstores. Um, the power of prayer. Or prayer changes things. And believe that what? If I pray sufficiently, persistently enough, the right way, the right way with the right words, then what's going to happen? I'll be prosperous and happy, and I won't have any disease, and everything will go well with me, and it'll all go well with my friends. And if I don't pray, then I'll be miserable, and I'll have disease, and I will be poor. But if I do pray, I'll be rich and happy, and all will go well. So I will pray that way, and there's people out there that will teach you, well, if, well, why didn't it happen for you? Well, you didn't do it right, that's all. You didn't have enough faith. That's praying, in my view, for our will to be done. Whereas Paul says that it's God who has entered into this fallen world and out of this fallen world that's subjected to all these things, he's using all of these things to bring us to the ultimate will of God, which is conformity to Christ. Go ahead. Just two comments um, or observations or confessions. <laughs> um, I think what you're talking about, the attitude of, you know, if I do it right, um, and, and then if I'm doing it right, I should not, if I'm a good Christian, I should not be afflicted with all these problems. Right. To me, in my experience in limited world travels, that's a very American thought. And when I encounter believers in other countries, their attitude is like, well, of course I'm suffering. I'm a Christian, of course, you know. What, what's this, you know, they, that whole uh, well, abundance. Uh, Dr. Barrett part. gave a talk uh, at Malone Chapel uh, about 25 years ago, I was there. Do you, you probably don't even remember it. The thesis of the passage was from, uh, the passage was Second Timothy. It has been given to you, not only to believe in the Lord Jesus, but also to suffer for him. Do you remember giving that talk? Some <laughs> I remember it like it was yesterday. Now that's the one passage that they never put in the promise Bible. <laughs> That's a promise. It has been given unto you, not only to believe in the Lord Jesus, but also to suffer on his behalf. So you're saying that people around the world that aren't Americans, they have a more tendency to say, yeah, of course I'm suffering. I'm a Christian. What does this passage Paul says from us uh, to us in verse uh, 36? He quotes it from the Older Testament. For your sake, for God's sake, we face death all day long. We're considered a sheep to be slaughtered. What's that mean by that? We, no one's going to like this. I don't like it. But what's he saying about the role of the Christian? We're supposed to be living a sacrificial life. What is Jesus called in the New Testament? He's the... Oh. <laughs> nice try. Bad lamb. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I, if he's the lamb of God and you're his follower, then what are you? If you're going to be conformed to his image, then what are you and I? So God's trying to turn us into not people that run away from sufferings, pain, and, and the sorrows of life, but those people that can bear it. 
and bear it with the understanding that God is working everything together for good. God's got it all under control. These are the things that you're supposed to experience when you have authentic supernatural communication with God. You're supposed to listen for what they're praying for. You're supposed to understand that the point of your prayer is not to get away from the sufferings that you're experiencing, but to, to experience them as Christ would. And you're supposed to understand that God's working everything together for good. That's what you're supposed to walk away from when you, when you pray. Now, yes, Leslie. I know one of the, um, the, you know, the central parts, when we weren't talking about Hebrews, um, we're supposed to see Jesus as a human, like when he was here. Do you think that a good example would be when he's in the garden, and he's, as a human, he doesn't want, really, I'm sure he was stressing out that he didn't want to go forward with what he knew was God's will. So he does pray that, um, if this could be passed from me, then let it be. If not, let, be, let your will be done. Now, so I, that's I think that's awesome you brought that up because he starts off with this. If it's possible, what? What's the end of it? If it's possible, let it go away. That tells us that it's okay to express your humanity to God. Jesus was human. It's perfectly okay to say, I don't like this. I wish this would go away. But then, what's the second part? Your will. This is the highest form of prayer because he was praying in the Spirit. And when he was praying in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit was making him understand in the garden, no, I don't really like this and I don't really want this in my flesh, but it is what? God's will that I... that I sacrifice my life. He's the archetypal pattern for praying in the Spirit. So it's okay to express your humanity, but once you're done with that, you need to listen to the Spirit and what Jesus is praying for what their will for you is. Yes, Dan? And what was Paul requesting on the, the afflictions of Christ in his flesh? 2 Corinthians chapter 12. It's permissible to express your humanity. So Paul says uh, he had a thorn in the flesh. He doesn't tell us what it was. Three times he said to the Lord, will you please take this away from me? The third time the master said back to him, uh, no, I'm not going to because my uh, power is perfected in weakness. So my grace will be sufficient to you. So Paul shares that. He says to Jesus, if it's possible, take the thorn. What's God say back to him? you're going to receive the grace that is sufficient to enable you to deal with the thorn because as you, you live with my grace and you go through this thorny experience, you're going to share in the sufferings of Christ and in that way you're going to be made conformed to Christ. Does that make sense? Perfect illustration of what the whole thing's about. Yes, great. miraculous in the sense that everything we, we know about the God human 
relationship mm -hmm. is that it is fully God and fully human. In other words, the scripture was fully inspired by God, fully written by a, a person. Our, keep going down that road. And prayer, even in this scripture, even this passage, God is working all things, including our prayers. And if our prayers weren't there, something wouldn't happen. I, I would prefer if you would say not our prayers, but the prayers that he inspires us to pray. Exactly. And in that sense, they're not necessarily ours any longer. Because there's the human prayer when you're just blathering to God. But we have to pray. Yes. It's Our God prayer is not unnecessary. Yeah, that's right. So it's an important point. But it's a lot different from saying God works in and through the prayers that God inspires us to pray than to say that if you don't pray, God's hands are bound and things will not happen, which is the current teaching that is much more prevalent than the other. Because when you believe that, then what? It puts the burden on us, like we have to conjole God into doing something. And this passage, if it teaches us anything, it's that God's the one that takes the initiative. God's praying first, yes. kind of makes me feel like, okay, so if I don't remember to pray every day, it's okay, God's got me. He's got my back. So mm -hmm. then I'm afraid I'm going to fall into the, the thinking that, hey, God's doing it anyway. The Spirit's groaning in me. Jesus is up there, you know, interceding for me. So why do I need to? God already knows what he wants to give me or what he wants to do for people mm -hmm. or, you know, what he wants to do for me. So I should just go on doing what I'm doing and not take time to do that. So what, what, what can you say to help me I, not feel that way? I would that say way? that you will wind up praying more once you leave the, if I don't pray, nothing cool will happen. And once we leave that model, which we've all bought into at one time or another, and, and some of us continue to buy into. But once you leave that model and you understand you are entering into the communication that they're already having. It motivates you to pray even more. Not because if you don't, cool things won't happen, but that you want to participate in this awesome conversation that the Holy Spirit and Jesus are having inside of you so that you can be fully informed about what God wants to do in your life. It will motivate you to pray more. Yes, Judge. Go ahead and make a comment. Very briefly, you talked about childbirth and the will of God and those kinds of things. Well, I had my first child and I listened to the doctor and I had an anesthetic. Next one, I was going to be a heroine, like a pioneer woman, have that child. <laughs> when I got down to it, the labor room was much too hot. It took too long. I was getting tired of this. I'd been there too many hours and I was real tired of it. So finally, I told the nurse that I think I probably needed the doctor, an anesthetic, something. Well, when it came the right time, they knew what the right time was, they hauled me off to the delivery room where the doctor did his thing and hauled out, making many comments on the difficulty of this and 
how this baby is much too big for you, as if I deliberately caused her to be three <laughs> weeks late. That was the will of God. That doctor gave birth to that child, and she was ugly, pointed head, big red marks, but she was alive, and she was well, and she was normal, and she grew up to be a woman. <laughs> well, I think we'll leave it at that in the sense that I think you just described perfectly what Paul's point is. Uh, it, living the Christian life seems an agony. It's too hot. It's taking too long. Um, and uh, things aren't going exactly the right way. But in the end, God works all things together to good to bring out of the agonies of our lives what God's will is. And that is what? For us to be a fully developed human in the image of Jesus. So I hope this is helpful. Uh, Joanne, you got one minute. Well, I'd like to go back to where we started. Um, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And we talked about how this is eternity when we get there. But I believe it is also in this life because you go through these problems and many times God's glory is revealed to us in those problems. Yeah, that we thank have. you. That, that's part of this as well, yes. So I hope this is helpful. Um, and I didn't get back to Sue Ellen's question. So I do a little thing on the back end, starting on page 93, about the Lord's Prayer. I still say the Lord's Prayer, but I do it in a, in a, with another understanding. And if you read that carefully, I think it'll make sense to you. Okay, God bless you. See you next week. Uh, this is the end of the book. And um, next week, we'll talk about angels for one week. So uh, bring a friend if you can. Okay, bye-bye.